0: This morning's scripture reading is found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is God's word. Go ahead and keep your Bibles out to Matthew chapter 5. We've been in Matthew for a few months now, and we are in the middle of a section called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I have not been uh, personally or directly involved with any uh, type of home remodeling or business construction, uh, but in talking with those who have, my impression is that dealing with the uh, the proper building permits and codes is at times one of the most annoying aspects of taking on a building project like that. Uh, you know, They can feel controlling or restrictive. They can end up costing a whole bunch of extra money that you didn't plan on or budget for. They might even thwart the very vision of the project because of running into some sort of safety uh, violation. And so there's all sorts of temptations to kind of just skirt around them. Uh, you know, to fly under radar, to go about building your project on your own terms. And of course, there's several ways someone might try and get away with that. Uh, the first is, is simply to ignore the code and to just start building, uh, to pretend as though it doesn't exist. You know, forget about the permits and regulations and, and go to work. The problem with that is uh, when the building inspector shows up, he's going to want to know by what authority... Are you building this project and by what standards, according to what standards? Because, of course, the codes as annoying and, and per, you know, uh, expensive as they are, they're generally there for a reason. Uh, our safety and protection, either your safety and, and not just yours, but even those who might uh, use or dwell in your home uh, someday when you sell it. So they matter. The second way you can try and circumvent them, though, is to make sure everything looks good from the street. So you, you post the building permit in a nice prominent place where you don't even have to stop to see it. You can just drive by, yeah? And, and then you make sure anything that, that's going to be readily noticeable is taken care of and you cut every other corner after that. Um, but of course, that too defeats the purpose of the code. Uh, it's undercutting the reason it exists. As we look at Matthew 5, 17 through 20 this morning, which again is part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, you might think of this sermon as the blueprints for the kingdom that Jesus is building, his building project. Jesus is laying out what life looks like as part of his kingdom under his authority as king. And like any building project, there is a code. In this case, the Old Testament Scriptures, what he calls the Law and the Prophets in verse 17. Now, we've been looking at these blueprints for a few weeks or or to change the imagery. We've been talking about how the Beatitudes in verses 1 through 10 are like a family portrait. Uh, they, They give a picture of what life looks like in God's kingdom. And then last week we talked about what that portrait is there for, why it exists it 's not just a you know a, a personal scrapbook for our own nostalgia it's a it's a family portrait displayed in the most prominent place to show the world what God is like uh, jesus 's followers are salt of the earth they 're the light of the world. but this portrait, what Jesus has been painting for us, uh, it raises a few significant questions, especially for the Jewish leaders and uh, religious leaders in his day. For starters, they already had a portrait of what life was supposed to look like in God's kingdom. It was called the Law of Moses. And second, the job description of being the light of the world, that was a job description we noted briefly last week that was first given to Israel. In Isaiah chapter 42, God's covenant people, the Lord says to them, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles or the nations. So it raises a few questions. If Jesus is building this kingdom, how does it relate to the law and to Israel's role to be a light to the world? Jesus anticipates those questions coming up. He knows that the Jewish leaders are going to show up like building inspectors, saying, do you have a permit for this thing? You know, By what authority are you building this kingdom, and how does it line up with the code, with the Old Testament scriptures? Because they thought they owned the code, for starters, and they had a building project of their own that they were working on and pretty invested in, and saw Jesus' kingdom as a threat to that. Now, most of us, maybe many of us today, are asking a slightly different kind of question when we look at a passage like this. The religious leaders in Jesus' day wanted to know, you know, does this thing line up with the code? You know, is it, is it, does it line up with the scriptures? What well, we tend to want to know is why anyone even cares about the code anymore. That's the question we're often asking. You know, what's the big deal? I mean, we look at the Old Testament today as somewhat outdated and a little awkward um, maybe you know it's pretty inconvenient at times and maybe even a little bit embarrassing for us in some of those parts and and so we don't see why it should even matter if Jesus is building his kingdom according to that code. Uh he's Jesus, he can do anything, right? Why does he need the Old Testament scriptures as a guide? In fact, maybe some of us would actually like a little bit more distance between us and the Old Testament and some of the things we find in there because we don't always like the code, um, but the code matters. Even for Jesus, the Old Testament code matters. It matters that his kingdom is according to Scripture. And so what Jesus shows us in Matthew five seventeen through 20 is that his kingdom is not only according to Scripture, it's the very fulfillment of all that the Old Testament Scriptures were looking forward to both the redemptive plan and the moral purpose of the Old Testament. What the Old Testament said about God's plan of salvation and about how God's people should live is fulfilled in Jesus and his kingdom. It's fulfilled in Jesus and his kingdom. In fact, this passage lays some of the groundwork for what he's going to talk about through much of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it's the bridge between the Beatitudes in the beginning, and his discussion on law and right living throughout that follows. And so, as we look at this incredibly important section in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, let's pray together and ask God to guide our, our time. Lord, we do want to hear from you this morning. It's your voice that matters. It's your word that matters. And so I pray that you would prepare our hearts that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see you, Lord, and that you would give us hearts that are ready to be changed by your Spirit. That's our prayer every week, God, that you would meet us and change us as we look into your Word. And we pray that you would give us understanding, and not just understanding and knowledge that left by itself can just puff up, but that you would give us an understanding that fuels and overflows into joyful obedience, Lord. That is our prayer this morning as we look at this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So the first question that I want to ask this morning is, Why does the code matter? Why does the code, the Old Testament, matter? Again, we're so often prone to neglect it, uh, sometimes even intentionally to avoid it. And, and of course, there are all sorts of reasons for that. For many, we're, we're just simply unfamiliar with the Old Testament. It's kind of like a neighborhood that we don't know. And so when we go there, everything feels unfa- unfamiliar and we kind of get lost, and so we just don't go there that often. Um, that's that's one of the probably biggest reasons uh, and then some of us have been there enough that, that we're not sure we like what we find. There's some really confusing and, and hard things in there. And, and we have honest questions about some of that. And, and so we're a little bit suspicious of it. Uh, and then some of us are simply apathetic. Uh, and there's no excuse for that one. Uh, you know, we don't care. We don't see why anybody else cares. And, and so we just kind of don't get bothered by it. But what we call the Old Testament, which is the first big chunk of the Bibles that you have in your hands or in the, in the rack in front of you, what we call the Old Testament and what Jesus and the early church called the law and the prophets, or sometimes just the law, it is holy scripture. It is God's word. The same word of God that Paul is talking about in 2 Timothy 3.16 when he says, all scripture is God-breathed. It's breathed out by God, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. There was no New Testament when Paul wrote those words. He's talking about the Old Testament. It was God's word long before the New Testament was written, and it remains God's word today. The Spirit did not waste His breath making small talk in the Old Testament, just waiting for the New Testament conversation to begin though that's sometimes the way we think of it. Rather, in the Old Testament, God lays the foundation for everything that follows. So in it, God reveals himself and his character. Uh, Think of Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, where he says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. A few months back, Tom Morris walked us through that passage, and we saw how that passage sets the groundwork for so much of the Old Testament that follows. It's quoted nine or more times. Elsewhere, God reveals himself in the Old Testament and that truth remains throughout the whole. Second, this, this gracious God who, who makes himself known as both loving and, and merciful and holy and just, he also reveals his holy standard for his people in the Old Testament. So God makes himself known, but he also makes known his desires and his holy standard for us, for his people. There's a moral vision or a moral purpose, a way that God calls us to live. Just as he is holy, so he calls us to be holy. Just as he is love, so he calls us to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves. In fact, that's one of the central reasons God gave Israel the law at Mount Sinai. It was instruction for life. It was so that they would know how to live as God's people In covenant relationship with him. God's standard of holiness. But. Because God knew. That no sinful human could keep that standard. The Old Testament also reveals God's plan of salvation. For his people. That what God purposed in creation. And what Adam corrupted through the fall. Through his rebellion against God. God promised to redeem it. And to restore It through his covenant people. So he promised to bless all nations through Abraham. He promised, and then later Israel. Through David, he promised to rescue his people and establish his kingdom and dominion to the ends of the earth. And he promised to do all of that through a coming Messiah. God himself would step into his own creation, taking on flesh as the long-awaited king. So the Old Testament shows us who God is what he expects of us and what he promises to do about that, how he promises to rescue us. And its authority stands. Its authority stands. Its purpose will be fulfilled. As Jesus says in in Matthew 5.18, I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So it is utterly crucial and absolutely necessary that when Jesus builds his kingdom, he builds it according to code, that it corresponds to the Old Testament. God is not divided against himself. He doesn't, you know, he didn't start out saying, here's the first try, that didn't work, scrap that, let's start over with a new and we'll send Jesus in to fix it. God had a, a unified Plan from before the foundation of the world and Jesus builds according to that plan. If there's no correspondence between Jesus' kingdom and the Old Testament, then there's no authority, no credibility, and no kingdom. He has to build according to code. The Jews were right to ask the question, you know, do you have a permit for this thing? But Jesus doesn't just say, that his kingdom corresponds to the Old Testament. Like a house built according to code. He's saying that the whole purpose of the code in the first place was for the building of this house. The whole reason there is a code is because it was pointing to this. The whole Old Testament points to Jesus and his kingdom. Pastor Doug O'Donnell writes, It would have been bold if Jesus said, I have come to adhere perfectly as no man has ever done to the law. Or if he said, I have come to give the best and final authoritative teaching on the law. Both of those would have been enough for the religious leaders, the religious crowd first to scratch their heads and then to rend their garments. But to say what Jesus actually said will get one crucified. I have not come to abolish it but to fulfill it. The whole thing was really about me. That's bold. And that's what he's saying. So how does Jesus fulfill it? How does he fulfill the Old Testament? I mean, countless ways. You can spend you know, an entire year or more looking at that. But there are two specific ways that Matthew is highlighting for us. The first is that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament's plan of redemption, the story of salvation, what God planned to rescue his people. Matthew has been going to great lengths to make that case so far. Uh, In fact, in this book, he's already used the word fulfill, talking about how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. He's already used that word six times before this passage. He's going to use it another seven times afterwards. So he's showing all of the different ways of what the Old Testament talked about, how Jesus fulfills that plan of redemption. He's the son of Abraham who brings God's blessing to all nations. He's the son of David who sits on the throne. He's Emmanuel, God with us, who has come to save us, ultimately through his life, death, and resurrection. So he fulfills the Old Testament by accomplishing the plan of redemption. Second, he fulfills it, he does so by fulfilling its moral purpose. So remember how the Old Testament showed us God's standard of holiness, what his people, how they're supposed to live. It has a moral purpose that was expressed in the law and a purpose we're called to live out in obedience. And so Jesus takes that moral purpose of how we're supposed to live and he actually brings that to fulfillment as well. Uh, One author comments, Jesus did not come to do away with the law and the prophets, but to bring out by word and deed the quality of life they were intended to produce. So the law was written so that it would produce a quality of life in God's people, one we were incapable of doing on our own. Jesus came to fulfill that, to bring out that quality of life among God's people. So, in other words, he's saying that the way you want to, if you want to keep the standard of holiness you find in the Old Testament, in fact, the only way you can actually faithfully keep that is now through allegiance to me and my kingdom. That's what Jesus is saying. saying. That if you want to obey God and, and keep the law, you now have to come through me and my new kingdom. That has huge implications uh, not just for us today, but for the religious leaders in Jesus' day. Uh, for for instance, it, first it means that holiness actually still matters. Holiness still matters for God's people. He wasn't getting rid of the law as though it no longer matters how we live. Holiness still matters. The, the Jews in Jesus' day would not have disputed that, uh, but we sometimes do. Uh, we think that often that, that because salvation is by grace, that it no longer matters how we live. Uh, we rightly recognize that that God does not save us because we're good enough. It's, it's not a matter of, well, here's the law, keep that. And if you do a good enough job, God's going to have mercy on you and save you. We know that that's not what Scripture teaches, and, and maybe some of us are confused about that. But if you are, you need to know: you do not get saved, you do not come into relationship with God, or 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 find your inheritance in heaven through being good enough, because you're not good enough. Okay, you're not. Nobody is. And so salvation is instead by grace. It's by what Christ did in our place. He was good enough for us. He took our sin and the penalty of it on himself on the cross that we might be cleansed and forgiven so that we could come into a relationship with God through faith in Jesus. So, so we're saved not by works, but by grace, by faith in Jesus. And, and we, we see that and we think, okay, so if I'm not saved by being good enough, maybe it doesn't matter how good I am anymore. Maybe, maybe holiness doesn't matter. And Jesus is saying here, no, it does. You're not saved by being good enough, but how you live before God still matters holiness still matters to God um, we we tend to downplay that though sometimes and maybe we're afraid of being accused of being legalists you know uh, people who kind of just keep the law and, and 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 try and get others to do it but don't really have faith or or sometimes we we, we downplay holiness and obedience because we're honestly rather unimpressed with God's holiness, and so we're not, therefore, very concerned about our sin. Uh, he doesn't seem like that holy of a God to us, and so, therefore, I'm not that bad. And so we downplay holiness for that reason. But the reality is we are saved from sin so that we might live holy lives for God as his people, to shine his light to the world, as we talked about last week. Jesus means what he says in verse 19. Anyone who breaks or relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The moral life that God intends for his people not only stands, but it will be fulfilled through Jesus and his kingdom. So holiness still matters. That's one of the first big implications here. The second implication is that by claiming to fulfill the law and the prophets, Jesus is reclaiming the scriptures from the religious leaders of his day who had hijacked them for, his, for their own purposes. So there, there were several religious groups kind of jockeying for power, In Jesus' day. Uh, He mentions a couple of them in verse 20. The scribes, or or the teachers of the law, and the Pharisees. The scribes were experts in the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, You you didn't want to go toe-to-toe with them in a a Bible quiz because they'd smoke you. You They were experts. The Pharisees set themselves apart from the rest of the Jews through their system of religious piety and purity. So they not only claimed to keep the building code, they went above and beyond it. They added extra regulations and expected everyone else to keep those too. So for example, if the law decreed to fast once a year, they fasted twice a week. Or if the law commanded resting on the Sabbath, they excluded every kind of work on Saturday. Both of those groups saw themselves as gatekeepers of God's law, the building inspectors that everyone else had to answer to. But Jesus challenges not only their authority as building inspectors, but whether they themselves even sufficiently keep the code. He says in verse 20, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, You will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a pretty shocking statement, isn't it? On on many levels. Again, the the scribes and the Pharisees they were the they were the super religious. How do you how does one's righteousness surpass those people? Uh, Doug O'Donnell writes the closest equivalent today would be for the average Roman Catholic to hear the divine pronouncement, unless you're holier than his holiness, the Pope, you're not getting into heaven. That's the level of shock that this statement would have on its hearers. But there's two things going on in Jesus's pronouncement here. First, he's exposing the superficial righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And second, he's calling us to a deeper righteousness. A righteousness that goes below the surface and comes from the heart, which is what the law and the prophets were after in the first place. So, first, the scribes and the Pharisees, he's exposing their superficial righteousness. They were they were like the builders who who, who got the permit and posted it in the prominent place for everyone to see and then cut every corner you couldn't see. Uh, but then also added other regulations all so that they could look good. That's basically their project. They were the hypocrites that Jesus talks about in Matthew 6. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. That's what they were doing. If you do, you'll have no reward from your father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets. You know, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. That was their program. It's like every time you drop a gift into the offering box, you kind of turn around and, and, and blast a trumpet and say, everybody, look what I just did. I'm so holy. That's what they were doing. Jesus is saying that, that's a superficial righteousness. They're the kind of people who when they help someone out, they post it on Facebook so everyone can congratulate them. That's, that's the picture their law-keeping was superficial and self-righteous. If you think about it in the categories of verse 19, what Jesus said there, they were the least in the kingdom who not only relaxed the law, but taught others to do so as well. Jesus asks them, the Pharisees in particular here in Matthew 15, and why do you break the command of God, i.e. the scriptures, for the sake of your tradition, for God said, honor your father and mother. And anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help I might have otherwise, you might have otherwise received from me, is a gift devoted to God. In other words, you know, gee mom, I can't help you with groceries this week because I'm going to make an extra gift to the church. He, you say that he's not to honor his father with it. Thus, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. They relaxed God's word. They, they took away from the Holy Scriptures and what it commanded. They also taught others to do so as well. Jesus says of the Pharisees in Matthew twenty three fifteen and some of the harshest words you'll read out of Jesus' mouth. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one... You make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. That was the Pharisees program. They not only relaxed the law. They taught others to do it. And put their followers in a worse place than they were in. That is the least. In the kingdom. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. Jesus says. Theirs was a superficial. And self-righteousness. And before we go wagging our fingers at them, we have to stop and recognize the reality that none of us are immune from that same kind of superficial self-righteousness. How often do we find ourselves doing something to serve God and realize that if someone else wasn't seeing this right now, I probably wouldn't be doing it? Or or doing it, but, but doing so grudgingly? And with self pity and bitterness, because they have to to obey, or else when we do it, you know we, we tweet about it or something like that, so others are, you're going to give us the praise. The reality is that we are all left to ourselves a bunch of hypocrites and performers you know it's it 's one of the charges often leveled against the church it 's full of hypocrites and, and if you 're here looking for a church not full of hypocrites i 'm sorry. You're going to have to keep looking, because we are. We 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 are left to ourselves a sinful mess. We perform to make others happy. We've bought into the lie that our significance and our identity is caught up in what others think of us, and so we put on the show. If what gives us acceptance is looking holy, we'll be holier than thou. If what gives us acceptance is bucking the system, we'll push every button we see. That's how we work. And, and you know, I, I find myself slipping into this when I hang out with other pastors in the area and I try and gauge how kind of how kind of buttoned up are they or how edgy are they. And, and depending on my gauge, I'll kind of either, you know, unbutton a little bit and, or, or I'll tighten it up because I want to look good to them. I want them to approve of me. You know, I'm no different. We say one thing to look good, we do another one that costs us less. Left to ourselves, we are self-righteous sinners who either find pride in God's law when we're able to keep it or who resent the law when we're crushed under its weight. We can't keep it. But true righteousness, a righteousness that not only fulfills the moral purpose of the law, but actually delights in keeping it, the kind of you know, delight that the psalmist wrote about, Oh, how I love your law, it is my delight all the day. That kind of true righteousness that accords to God's kingdom depends on God, not self, and goes beneath the surface. It's a righteousness that surpasses the scribes and Pharisees because it comes from the heart, from a changed heart. A heart that is redeemed by the gospel of Jesus, filled with God's spirit and surrendered to Jesus' authority. A heart redeemed by the gospel, filled with God's spirit and surrendered to Jesus' authority. This is where Jesus is going with most of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Throughout the rest of chapter 5, he shows with his divine authority as one speaking as God, he shows what the law is really supposed to look like when we live it out. Not, Not a surface level obedience as the scribes and Pharisees promoted, but an obedience from the heart. He says in verse 27, for instance, You've heard it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her. In his heart, Jesus goes below the surface, and again, this is what the law and the prophets were after in the first place—not uh, a superficial or a self righteousness, but a righteousness that comes from the heart. You know, when Samuel says to Saul in 1 Samuel 15, "Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices?" which the law prescribed and and Saul thought he was keeping. Has the Lord as, as great delight in that as in obeying the voice of the Lord, which Saul did not do? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to listen than the fat of rams. God was interested in the heart, not whether you went through the motions on the surface. Or David in Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. Sounds a little bit like what Jesus said at the beginning of the sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the poverty of spirit. And this, this kind of true righteousness which comes from the heart, this is what Jesus makes possible as one who rescues his sinful people and fills them with the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus fulfills the Old Testament's redemptive plan, He's able to bring about its moral purpose in and through us. He's able to help us obey from the heart. If you, if you look at it in the language of the prophets, like Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 in particular, Jesus is establishing a new covenant. So, not like the old covenant, which was written on tablets of stone and which we were unable to keep because of our stone hearts, but a new covenant where God gives us a heart of flesh, he replaces our heart of stone, he cleanses us, fills us with his spirit and writes his law on our new hearts that we might walk in obedience to him. That's the imagery of the new covenant Ezekiel and Jeremiah are talking about. And that's what Jesus accomplishes by fulfilling God's redemptive plan. He gives us a new heart, fills us with his spirit that we can actually walk in obedience to God. Not that we will do so perfectly. You know, As long as we're in this body of flesh waiting for, for the Lord's return, we will continue to wrestle against sin. And not that our obedience will look the same as Israel's obedience either. And that's often uh, a, a very confusing aspect. You know, how do Christians obey the Old Testament? That, that gets pretty confusing. You know, what Jesus says in verse 18 is, is very true. Not even the least part of the law is going to pass away until the end. But because Jesus has come and brought his new covenant, our obedience doesn't always look the same. Uh, For instance, you know, you have the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. Most of those, we obey them pretty much straightforward, the same way that Israel was to obey them. But then when you come to the sacrificial system, the, the system you find in Leviticus and so on, that's entirely different. The sacrifices and offerings that the law prescribed for Israel's worship have now been fulfilled in Jesus. He was the final sacrifice, uh, they were all pointing forward to the cross, and now that Christ has fulfilled those sacrifices on the cross, if you were to offer one, you would actually be disobeying the law. Because the whole thing was pointing to Him, and He has finished that part. We obey that law by trusting Jesus. By looking to Him as the great Passover lamb who died in our place. Or other laws like dietary restrictions, you know, that, that Israel had. Those were a daily reminder that Israel was a chosen people. And so just as God made distinction between them and the nations, he told them, you better make a distinction in your diet. And that's a daily reminder that you are a chosen people. Uh, Leviticus 11 talks about that. Those, diets, those dietary restrictions have been done away with by Jesus as well because God has opened the kingdom now to all nations. to Not just to... to to Israel, but to all nations, just as he promised Abraham. That's why when Peter is sent to the Gentiles, he has a vision of a bunch of unclean animals. And God says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. You're going to the Gentiles now. And so that whole purpose of the dietary laws is done away with. Now, the theology, the message of those things stands. Sin is still atoned for by blood sacrifice. The law stands. Jesus was that sacrifice. God still is choosing a people for himself. That law stands. But now it's not just Israel, it's all nations. And so our obedience to the law doesn't always look exactly the same as it did for Israel under that old covenant. The application is sometimes different. But in all these things, the standard of holiness, the standard we are called to that reflects God's holy character. That standard stands. And God supplies the ability to keep it by His Spirit. We can't just ignore the code and go about building our lives in whatever direction we want. Nor is it enough simply to look good from the street. You know, to, to do everything on the surface but not mean it from the heart. God calls us to a radical obedience in Jesus, an obedience that fulfills the moral purpose of God's law, an obedience that shines the light of Jesus into the world, that shows the world what God is like, an obedience that comes from a heart that's changed by the gospel of Christ. What the Old Testament said about God's plan of salvation and how God's people should live, Jesus says is fulfilled in him and his kingdom. And so, you know, as we think about this, um, I invite all of us to ask ourselves the question, is my righteousness genuine? Is my obedience genuine? Does it come from a heart that has been changed by Jesus? Where have I neglected God's law out of convenience or selfishness? need to ask that question. Where have I relaxed his view of holiness or taught others to do so? Where do I need to repent? Where do I need to turn away from sin and, and turn to Jesus? And wherever you find yourself falling short, because we all will find ourselves somewhere on that, Wherever you find yourself falling short, the response is not to just go try harder. You know? You cannot manufacture true obedience. That's the whole difference between it coming out of the heart versus just pasting it on on the surface. Nor is the response to just kind of beat myself up and, and wallow in guilt and shame and as long as I make myself feel bad about it, somehow that will atone for it. That's not the point either the response is go back to Jesus. Go back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, to poverty of spirit, to a brokenness that mourns over our sin, that sees God's holiness for what it is and sees our unrighteousness for what it is and that mourns over that. Go back to Jesus' life where he did what you and I could never do in keeping God's righteous law perfectly, perfectly, In our place, go back to the cross where every sin, every failure, every time we relaxed God's law or taught others to do so was poured out on him. He was treated like the sinner, the sin bearer. He was treated like the Pharisee and the scribe on that cross. He bore our sin, the the weight and the penalty of our sin, the holy wrath of God in our place go back to that cross where our sin is forgiven and then go back to his resurrection where where life conquered death, where sin's power was broken and where God launched his new creation, the age of the Holy Spirit. Rest in the Holy Spirit that he gives us and move forward by faith. Struggling, wrestling, with all his energy that powerfully works within you. Jesus is in you. If you are his child, if you have trusted him, if you are a member of his kingdom, Jesus is in you. Jesus is enough. And Jesus is worthy. He's worthy of our obedience. As we close, I want to give us a few minutes uh, this morning just to reflect and to pray silently before God, to confess any sins that he's laid on your heart that that you've been holding on to or, or just ways where you have been skirting the code knowingly, to ask him to search your heart and show you those things, but also to rejoice in the gospel of his grace that God has not left you in your sin, but that he has provided a sufficient grace to not just to forgive you, but to strengthen you and to ask God to strengthen us for a true obedience that comes from the heart. So take a few minutes and pray before the Lord, asking those things. Lord, where where am I skirting your word? Thank you. Help me see how the gospel speaks to that and give me strength to go forward in obedience. Pray those things before God.